Anna, with John Lennon taking the lead. You know, John, I'm very, very glad that you sang that. Jolly good, really. Yes, I'm, very, I'm particularly glad for Gwendolyn Hopkin of um, Lemton Abbey Estate in Nottingham because she says that she wouldn't love you anymore if you hadn't sung it. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Yes, all right. Well, it's also for Valerie King of Temple Fortune and Miss L. Goldstein of Greenway Avenue, Walthamstow, and it was requested for them by their friends, Susanna Paula Lawton of Finchley, London. Say hello. Hello. Okay, take five, boys. Welcome this week's One There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Pretty quiet week this week. Paul's still on tour. He went through Oakland, and uh, to follow up on a comment we made last week, he is indeed switching between Queenie Eye and New in his set. So, depending upon which evening you'll be there, you don't know which song from New you're going to see. And maybe he may play both at some point. Who knows? He's doing what he wants to do. But other than that, yeah, it's been kind of a quiet week. Yeah. Especially after the last few weeks where we had at least some announcements, although no big announcements. It's It's been really a whole quiet year as far as big Beatle releases. I know it's like that, but when you consider that the band broke up 52 years ago. <laughs> Indeed. And you know, all of these releases we're talking about are 50-odd years old, although... <laughs> I still kind of think we would have had a sometime in New York City announcement had there not been that issue. Yeah, could be. While we wait, we're going back to our ongoing series on the Lord Reef BBC recordings disc three this week. Right. Disc one was roughly a year's worth of time in order to get enough material to cover a single CD. Disc two was six months or so. Disc three... Four weeks. <laughs> well, as Paul once said, they were busy lads. <laughs> the BBC wanted more of them. They were trying to get six or seven more shows in the middle of this run here. You know, I, I guess they were worried about, oh, well, they're not going to be worth the time by Christmas. So we got to wring as much out of them as we possibly can. Well, yeah, that's kind of the way the business works. They're, they're going to get everything they could out of them, but... Uh... The Beatles themselves were really experiencing their first real serious dive into what it meant to be famous. Yeah, girls are really reacting. <laughs> the Orbison tour was going on. We've spoken of that before. The Beatles actually taking the top spot on the tour from Roy. 
Yeah, although that's more aggressive than it really was. <laughs> it's just the way the fans reacted. <laughs> Roy didn't want to go on after them, and they weren't real happy about going on after Roy. <laughs> yeah, who won that battle, really? Well, we've got to top that every night. Yeah. That was what was going on in their lives as we go into week two of Pop Go the Beatles. And you know, shortly before the radio series had begun, there was another incident in John Lennon's life, uh, the infamous Spanish holiday. Right. And it's famous for a couple of things. I think we tend to make a little bit too much of it. We look at it in the light of what we're talking about. It's real interesting. John was just learning what it meant to be famous. And he had his wife getting ready to, to give birth to his first child. So there was this huge batch of stress on him. And he just kind of didn't get what it meant. Right. The birth of Julian really wasn't part of his life at that point. He married Cynthia because that's what you were supposed to do. But he was busy. <laughs> and we are still talking about him because he stayed busy as a Beatle. So I think, at least in part, he went off with Brian because he wanted the vacation. He needed to get away from his regular life. I don't think that he was really interested other than more, he's a gay guy and he's inviting me on this trip. I'm not gay, so I just want to kind of see what this business is. What is this life that he leads? Yeah, certainly it was an opportunity to get to know Brian much better. And there was the other issue which was settled apparently during this trip was how were they going to uh, label what is now the Lennon McCartney partnership? What order were they going to put that in? Because before it was often McCartney Lennon after it was Lennon McCartney. Well, their original idea was that they switched back and forth. Well, switch back and forth. How? Per record. Wasn't that what they had said was that, you know, it'd be Lennon McCartney on the one record and then McCartney Lennon on the next and so on and so forth. Well, it would be per album or per single. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the agreement was. That's just the way I, I'd always heard it to be. But what you're kind of saying is that this was sort of a power move on John's part. Who knows whether it was planned out, but John took advantage of the situation. Paul has always felt like that was a smart move on his part. And whether or not anything occurs sexually between the two, who cares? <laughs> Honestly, well, you know, I, I don't. Brian was gay. John wasn't. They may have. They may not have. It's not my business. I guess. I find it hard to believe that with all the craziness in, in Hamburg that John would have no idea really what a gay person was about. So I don't know whether he was looking to you know, specifically find out about that lifestyle or whether he was following up on some signal that Brian put out because apparently he did signal people and wanted to see what this was. So what John would say with Pete was that it was kind of a 12-day love affair, but that it was never consummated. Right. And I think it probably is fair to say that there was at least as much of a love relationship between John and Brian as there was between John and Paul. Brotherly love or parental love, in quotes, not necessarily love as in romantic love. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to, to ponder, as you said, John and all of them were coming into this incredible fame. And what did John feel? Did he feel like, well, that was because of what they had done? Or 
was this man largely responsible for the success? It's the whole Svengali thing, which would really trouble them about George Martin to a certain extent throughout 1970. Yeah, right. How much is being, how much is the luck of meeting someone? Or is it just the right combination of the right people at the right time? Yeah. You know, we're going to move on to the BBC recordings from this time period, but just one last thing on this. Uh, there was an hour-long art film called The Hours and the Times. Really great. Hypothesizes what might have gone on. It's not a documentary, but as far as a dramatization of those 12 days, it's done quite well. It's written well, and it's shot well. Yeah, I agree. It's up in the top of Beatle films. Yeah, we'll probably review that sometime when we get around to reviewing Backbeat. <laughs> Same actor portraying John Lennon in both films. Right. <laughs> it's a double album. <laughs> All right. We left off with the first Pop Go the Beatles show. The Beatles went back into the BBC studios on the 1st of June for shows two and three. And for whatever reason, they taped show three before they taped show two. I don't know why they did that. Who knows? But they had also laid out some ground rules to the BBC, which are kind of interesting. They were starting to exercise their own power. The May 24th, 1963 issue of the New Musical Express says, quote, The Beatles will sing five or six numbers in each presentation. R&B material will be strongly featured. It was an interesting decision, for although they did play a few Lennon-McCartney numbers, they certainly could have featured them much more. Instead, the Beatles opted for versatility, letting the British public hear songs they could no longer perform in live concerts now restricted to 20 to 25 minutes and only hit material. Right. I think we talked about this before, that these radio shows played a big part in introducing Britain to this kind of music, which could have been wrapped up in that whole Mercy Beat sound. But a lot of these songs were not known in England. So they played more copy material. It was still unknown music. I agree with you. Even so, you look at shows two and three, as opposed to the first show. The first show, they were more sticking with what they were doing on the stage at that time. They were playing their own material. They were playing it a little bit safe, almost. Right. Well, you know, every time you do something, it's like, how are you going to do it better next time? So what you were talking about, you know, they're really starting to take control of what they were doing. That's that process of making your presentation better every time. And it also probably relates to, they saw what these other acts were doing on their own shows when they went on side by side or something. And it's like, we don't want to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's as much as what they don't want to do as what they want to do. So we go into show two, which was actually, like I say, taped later in the afternoon on June 1st. The theme is not present. I guess we just don't have a copy of that. And the first song they actually perform is Too Much Monkey Business, an old Chuck Berry number from 1956. A Lennon favorite. And a John Stone favorite. <laughs> I, I like their version of this. Uh, again, it's great Chuck Berry lyrics. Yeah. Brown hair, good looking, trying to get me, hooking me to marry, settle down, get a roll, find a book. Ow. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business for me to imbibe again. Ow. And Lennon's vocal is, is spot on. It's really good. Well, on this whole disc, John does not turn in a bad or even mediocre performance. He is 100% all the way through. 
every song on this disc. Yeah, for sure. The host is our old friend Lee Peters, a.k.a. P. Leaders. <laughs> he is really stiff. He is very much the old school BBC announcer. Well, they were around. <laughs> now, uh, where were we? Oh, yes, uh, horses. Right, let's all put our money on the Beatles' next runner. Under starter's orders for Young Blood. He tries to get a little bit funny, and he tries to clown around with them a little bit. But when you hear the future shows, you know, after this first batch of four, he wasn't the right guy to be doing the show. Yeah, and was there a right guy, really, at the BBC at that point? Well, Brian Matthews was better. But still, old school. We go. I've just got these half dozen questions, so... Um, well, I'm in your hands. No problem. Box it as we go. Okay. Um, is that okay for you, Terry? Lovely. Go in the green. Okay for level. Ah. So, right then. Well, Paul, it's uh, great to have you with us. And, of course, uh, all the listeners want to know, how's the new record coming along? Well, we finished mixing it last week, and it sounds good. Uh Uh-huh. So we can look forward to an imminent release. Well, um, it shouldn't be too long now. Oh, great. Well, you can rest assured that all of us here in Radio Land are eagerly awaiting the arrival of your new songs. How many have you got for us this time? Uh, There's about 12 in all. 12? Great. Uh, All your own lyrics? Yeah, I write my own stuff. They almost should have just turned the mics over to them, let them do their own introductions, let them do their whole thing all the way through. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, in a way, their attitude and their style of doing things is part of the sea change they brought to show business at that point. You know, the the fact that we can talk about this old school of broadcasting is the fact that it definitely changed at that time. John is very aware of that. He likes to put on the uh, Queen's English, the the clip BBC announcer style voice whenever he possibly can. Yes, he does. (laughs) Then they follow uh, Too Much Monkey Business with another Chuck Berry song, I Gotta Find My Baby. Well, there's your theme. Another great song, another great recording. Right. Then Youngblood. That's a good live song. Kind of comic. Yeah, it's very much in the tradition of Besame Mucho and Three Cool Cats. Sheikah Barabi, you know. Would it have worked on an album? Uh, it may have been a good B-side. Could have been. That sort of thing, it would be more like Too Much Monkey Business or other songs more than Youngblood. This disc by itself, there's not a whole lot of repeats. Uh, you know, there, there's a couple songs that they do twice, a couple songs that they do three times, but other than that, there is a full album's worth of material here. Right. They did indeed use a lot of this disc on the first disc of the official Live at the BBC set. That could have been the, the album that George Martin wanted to record. <laughs> the Cavern album would have sounded much like this, I think, in terms of set list. Yeah, I agree. Then we get Till There Was You. <laughs> you know, reading uh, Mark Lewison's 
book, I will now never get that image out of my head of him saying that all the girls said that every time he sang till there was you, that Paul would look up at the, the sky with his big eyes. <laughs> the whole Dirk McQuickly thing. <laughs> exactly. That is what Eric got exactly right in the Ruddles. <laughs> yeah, yes, because it was real. <laughs> all those hearts just melted. And then you get the comic bit, which lasts, but I, I don't quite get it. I thought this next number was called Sha La 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 La. La. La? La. But in fact, baby, it's you. Why don't you do it in your famous James, James Mason, Mason impersonation voice? <laughs> oh, all right. Go on, man. Um, oh, I'll do it in your. I thought this next number was called um, <laughs> Sha La 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 La. In fact, baby, it's you. Get off. Get off. Is that right? <laughs> Very good. Okay. Can you do Mickey Mouse? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sing the song, fellas. Okay, let's go. Was that an in-joke or... <laughs> I'm not sure. They're trying to spark some comedy between the Beatles yeah. and Lee Peters. And, but where did the famous James Mason impersonation voice come from? I guess I've always kind of presumed that he, being a BBC guy, was known to them. And so they would know some of his shtick. One of the things that I found out while looking up some things for this show, he was... One of the leads on a BBC radio soap at the time. Oh, really? Well, that makes some sense. But again, where does the famous James Mason impersonation voice come in? <laughs> it's a little bit like help, you know? Right. Not a bit like Cagney. <laughs> right. And this version of Baby It's You is very good. It's better than the recorded one. A lot of these are as good, if not better, than the recorded versions. Right. Which shows that they were rehearsed to a T when they knew these songs. It's not the way you smile that touched my heart. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Oh, many, many, many nights go by. I sit alone at home and I cry over you. What can I do? Cause baby, it's you. Baby, it's you. Then that's followed by yet another mention of Harry and his box. Who is Harry? More from Harry and his box next week. We spoke of that last time. That was a running gag all through Pop Go the Beatles. And Paul McCarty would resurrect it sort of for Broad Street. <laughs> and then Lee Peters again. <laughs> From the dark days of 1962, and let's hope the Beatles remember all the words of Love Me Do. And, you know, I guess that's kind of the way that they thought. This was a whole year ago. But it wasn't. It was October to June. Time collapsed when the Beatles arrived. This was last year. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there are six new versions of songs in this first show. It's a good version of Love Me Do. I mean, you know, it goes along with all the others that they did on discs one and disc two, but they hadn't changed it much, but that's fine. At least they didn't go into that skip. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Although they only did that on TV. <laughs> they never did that in any of the radio shows. Yeah, then it closes out with the long version of Pop Go the Beatles. It <laughs> 
go the Beatles! actually a cool little jam that goes on for about 45 seconds at the end of when it usually cuts off well they're working it up for their next album pop go the beatles the beatles were not a jam band but they actually managed playing together well and they're having at least a little bit of fun with it yeah although you know i might take issue with the fact that they weren't a jam band because that's what they did at hamburg was just play for hours now they weren't a jam band as we've come to to call them that people who would play extended versions of songs or just jam on a riff they certainly did when Stu was still around that they would do whole sets of what did i say (laughs) right which was already a what 12 minute song six minutes on each side okay we'll just keep going with it (laughs) that was the second edition of pop go the beatles and it aired on the 11th of june 1963 The same day, and actually recorded first, was the third Pop Go the Beatles show, which would be aired on the 18th of June. 18th of June. 18th of June. What happens on 18th of June? Gosh, I don't know, although they do make mention of it. (laughs) Well, there you go. After accidentally claiming that Ringo's birthday was the 7th of June. (laughs) He just sits there drumming his drums, and we'd never have known it was his birthday last Friday if we hadn't received this card from Joyce and Muriel Eyre of Sheffield. Happy birthday to you, Ringo. There you are, you see, girls, I've passed on the good wishes. I made a little bit of a nit of myself last week because somebody wrote in and said it was Ringo's birthday on June the 7th. It is not. I can definitely say that it is on July the 7th. So we'll be pleased to receive all those cards wishing Ringo a happy birthday. More Lee Peters. After the short version of Pop Go the Beatles. All's right for the world. Or will be when we've had a shot of rhythm and blues. Another great cover song. Right. I love the harmonies on this. They're singing very well. It's a nice song. Yeah, it's not one of my favorites. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The guitars, today it's a little bit cliche. Yeah, for sure. But George still manages to put some life into it. Yeah, it doesn't suck. (laughs) Get a shot of rhythm and blues. Morley Peters, again, sort of almost trying to be funny, but not quite. <laughs> Which apparently is his standard shtick, too. We've all heard about the wonders of Nashville, Tennessee. Now the Beatles take up a country and western style. Oh, and there's a wolf. It is loud, loud. Really? Well, whatever it is, you take it up to give us the gen on Memphis, Tennessee. Just outside of Liverpool. And Nashville, the north. Then John's doing Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, one that had been part of their itinerary for quite a while at this point. Yep. 
he does that's a good version he does chuck berry very well he, he certainly lives that on that day they recorded three chuck berry songs where's the buddy holly <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they were thinking they would just concentrate on one artist in each set of shows huh yeah concepts but these shows are so john heavy yeah and i'm not quite sure why that is i'm not qu- quite sure why paul let that be the case can't we do Long Tall Sally in here somewhere? <laughs> he doesn't even do that because his two showcases of those sets, Till There Was You and A Taste of Honey, it was almost like it was planned to be that image. I think they certainly wrote out a set list before they went down to do <laughs> these shows. Maybe they didn't quite figure on the order they were going to do them in, but it's like, they had to have known, okay, we're going to do eight John songs, Paul's going to get two, and that's that. Yeah, it had to be worked out. And I wonder how much Brian is involved. They've just come back from a Spanish holiday. <laughs> this is true. Suddenly everything gets John heavy. <laughs> okay, okay, we won't go there. <laughs> Although we, we, we will be going there just uh, in about two minutes here. <laughs> yeah, welcome to News of the World. That was followed by Taste of Honey. So he does a Taste of Honey. Yeah, Paul does Taste of Honey. Then Lee Peters introduces George doing Sure to Fall. Right, when it's a duet all the way through. (laughs) It's a duet, and then it's actually uh, almost three-part at the end there, I think. I mean, Paul gets the break. Yeah. I think they're singing in three-part harmony at the end there, the last verse. It's a fun version. Sure to fall. Here's some Carl Perkins. Yeah. And Ringo would cover it again many years later. More country than most of their material, but they certainly like that to a degree. They were trying to show off all of the different sides of their repertoire, I think. Right. Then you get one of the few songs from their guests. We get Carter Lewis and the Southerners doing Greenback Dollar, which was apparently a Kingston Trio song. Yeah. Well, it goes back further than that but yeah the bbc seemed to have wanted to pair the beatles with folk artists folk trios in particular because the other one that we hear on this disc is also a folk trio right but this is 63 and i I don't know exactly what was going on in in england but in america i mean that, that was the era of pete Seeger and kingston trio and peter paul and mary yeah, I hear this. All I can envision is a mighty wind. <laughs> right. One, two, three, and... You may have caught the folksman performing on the Letterman Show this past week and wonder... Whenever I'm out wandering, chasing a rainbow dream... They seem familiar If you're a certain age, you rack your brain. Do I remember that song? The Folksmen are a fictional folk group in a movie called Mighty Wind, which opens this week. Harry Shearer, Michael McKeon, and Christopher Guest. No offense to uh, Carter Lewis and the Southerners, but it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's a very particular time and place. Yes, for sure. Uh, Although the the song does lead well into John doing a killer version of Money. (laughs) All right, there's your social commentary. (laughs) 
easily the, the best version that he's done on the BBC. Certainly better than the one he did at DECA, and possibly better than the EMI version. Oh, that's hard well, to beat. The EMI version was recorded around this time. They were getting ready to go into early sessions for what would be you know, with the Beatles. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why they chose to play it here. But this version and that version are very close in terms of John's vocal. And the whole Beatles version of it rests on John's vocal being, it's not quite as much as Twist and Shout, but almost. Yeah. The main difference between this and the properly recorded version is George Martin's piano. Yeah. Then the show closes. We got to do one of our own, so we'll do for me to you. <laughs> right, which was the last single. They're getting ready to record She Loves You around this time as well. So the Beatles would return to the BBC on the 17th of June, although this would not be aired for a little while. But immediately after that, they went home because Paul was having his 21st birthday. Major event 21st birthday paul uh, how do you feel after that fabulous 21st birthday party i hear you had oh great yeah we had a great tell time. me tell me was Lovely. harry there yeah with his box was he yeah it was, up, the box is all right is it turned up fine good all the best you feel like a man now yeah i feel great thanks great having a great time um, and it would be commented on in a radio show and it actually became a major event in more ways than one it was a garden party and there were lots of people there having fun <laughs> yes <laughs> Brian had hired the foremost to play, although the foremost never actually got paid. Oh, I didn't know that. Again, I don't know if Brian actually hired them or if Paul said, get us a band. And the foremost offered to play for free. Paul said, no, no, we'll pay you your regular fee. And then they never got paid. <laughs> it's a Beatles yeah, thing. Apparently. Also at the party that evening, uh, Billy J. Kramer, The Shadows, Jane Asher. And the Shadows had attended as well. Ah, yes. Uh, well, I say we were major fans of theirs, and of course, you really wanted to impress your families with the showbiz people you knew. I mean, I'm still a bit like that. They used to make fun of me for that. You know, you were a real starstruck. You know, Hank Marvin and Bruce Welsh. You know, it was just whoa. and Cliff. Forget it. I mean, we were just in awe for days when we met Cliff, because he was the English Elvis, you know, there was no two ways about it. All drinking and having a very good time. And as you said, it's right at the, the beginning when they're really, really getting famous. And so Liverpool turns out for this party, and it's, it's a great time. Well, until John got a little bit too drunk. So yeah, I remember it vaguely, I was out in mind to drink all, you know, when you get down to the point where you drink all the empty glasses, that's drunk. <laughs> yes. They can be very thankful that this was 1963 and not 2013 or 2023. Yeah. But, you know, the incident was enough to uh, really be, in, in John's memory, the first real national press nationwide because the Beatles were the hot new thing and then he had this dust up with bob wooler the back page of the mirror with me beating up bob wooler at paul's 21st that was the first lennon hits out story you know and that was the first national stuff we got the incident in question john was exceedingly drunk at this point bob wooler came up to him and well he made some untoward comments about the spanish holiday that john had had with brian maybe <laughs> you know, as, I don't know if there were untoward comments or whether they were jokes or ribbing or because no one really knows 
what was said other than John was drunk and something was said about the holiday with Brian and John could have taken offense to what was meant to be a joke. He was saying, well, come on, John, tell me something like that. He was saying, tell me about you and Brian. We all know that. And obviously I must have been on... Uh, frightened of the gaff in me to get so angry at that. You know, when you're 21, you want to be a man and all that. Uh, Hasn't it been revealed that Bob Waller was actually also gay? I thought. It's another reason that, you know, maybe Bob Waller was trying to hit on John. (laughs) I heard you went off with Brian. You know, would you like to come back and not, you know, we don't know this, but it's a possibility. In our tabloid world here. We will say the tabloid things, but we won't believe them. (laughs) I don't necessarily believe that, but it's a possibility that could have happened. Right. It was the first time I thought, I can kill this guy, you know, I just saw saw it, like, from on a screen, that if I hit him once more, that's going to be it, you know. And that's when I gave up violence, because all my life had been like that, and that's when I really got shocked, you know. Uh, Bob War was off to the hospital, the Beatles would pay for all of War's bills, Brian took care of it as well as he could. But it did get out, and there was some national press on it. I mean, it wasn't big national press. First of all, showbiz news is not what it is today. It doesn't make the front pages or even the middle pages often. And so, you know, it was just a a note in a lot of back pages of newspapers. Not like it became a thing. It became a one-time written story. It had no legs. Even when the cycle was not the next 20 minutes, it's still something that someone may have read and went oh well that's unfortunate right turn back to the to the footy score i'm scores. going to burn some beetle records <laughs> not quite yeah. yet but it would have a big effect on john i mean you know even in get back john gets a little defensive there it's like i i don't regret anything not even bob Waller. right you know brian was able to pretty effectively clean up john's mess well, if it is, in fact, truth that Bob Wooler is gay, then I'm sure they knew each other within that community, and Wooler wasn't going to make a big deal about it. And I was so bad the next day, they had a BBC appointment, and they all went down the train, I wouldn't come. And Brian came to the, into my house in Mendips, you know, and was pleading with me to go down there. And I was so afraid, you know, what, what the outcome of nearly killing him. Because I nearly killed him. The next actual aired show was a live show, Easy Beat, recorded on the 19th of June and aired on the 23rd of June, 1963. So, I mean, you know, they had not even a day to A, sober up, and B, deal with the business of what was going on here. Right. You know, I know that the reputation of Liverpool youth (laughs) would suggest that this kind of thing happened uh, not infrequently. I would be surprised if Paul's family, aunts and father, took kindly to an incident at their the gathering in the backyard of their home. So Paul was going to have to deal with that. Particularly since even though Paul was a rich man and taking care of his family very well at that point, James McCartney, his dad, Jim Mack, I'm sure had not let go of his feelings of John Lennon from five years earlier. No. I mean, it's kind of like Cynthia's mother, although Jim Mack was a little bit more diplomatic than Lil Pal. Right. That Lennon, referring to John, not Alf. <laughs> that makes me think about what Paul's father had to say to him 
about John when the band broke up. That would be interesting to know. And I've never read anything on it. I mean, Mike has even not really talked that much about it. You know, <laughs> Jim Mack certainly was familiar or had an opinion about John's behavior and his potential for doing selfish things. And when you consider that in a lot of ways, Paul's heart was broken when the band broke up, the consolation of, of Jim Mack to Paul probably was immense. Although was he going to his dad at that point? Linda was around and Paul was still not on the best of terms with his new stepmother. I guess you would call her. Well, perhaps I guess I've always gotten the impression that Paul was very close to his father. He tried. And I think he, there were certainly times when he was, but at that point, I almost think he was relying on the Eastmans much more than he was on his own dad. Not out of any spite or anything, just because, well, they were the ones who were the business lawyers and, and they could advise him on the best way to deal with this sort of thing. If he was going to talk to somebody about how John Lennon was, that would be the guy to talk to. Linda doesn't know. So the next show that airs was taped the day before Paul's. It was the fourth and final of the current run of Pop Go the Beatles, and it would air on the 25th of June, 1963. Right. They recorded it at a studio just around the corner from Abbey Road. Right. Several cuts for the first album. Uh, and there's a bunch of famous Dezo Hoffman pictures which were taken on that same day. The track list is Sawyer standing there, more chat with Lee Peters, Anna... Boys, where Ringo reads some cards. Pick two, Ringo. Oh, there you go. Uh, this one's for all the girls at Lower Fourth and Blackburn House, Liverpool. Oh, that was our sister uh, school. Right? I was at college just near there, you know. College pudding. Shut up. <laughs> well, you're posh. <laughs> <laughs> also for Jill, Janet, Mary, Brenda, Lynn, and Dinah, my dog, from Wakefield, Yorkshire. Well, that, that'll do. How about it? Uh, do you feel ready, Ringo? Oh, I'm very fit. Okay, boys. That was a common feature to all of these shows. One or more of the fabs actually reading cards from the yeah. listeners. And they're all just about the same, you know. <laughs> right. Dear John, we love you. Please play our song. But that's not too far removed from, you know, the requests they'd get up on stage at the cavern. That's true as well. And then Ringo did Boys. Uh, then they did Chains. Then we got uh, their guests, The Bachelors. <laughs> got all the records. Something I found while digging through for a little bit about the Bachelors, someone wrote into the UK news, did the Bachelors really keep the Beatles off the number one slot on more than one occasion? And we learned that no. According to the New Music Express, the Bachelors did not have any number one hits. They were a successful mid-60s trio, and their highest position in the charts was number two with Diane on February 29th, 1963. So a few months before this. So they're just up and coming. What is the song, Jailer, Bring Me Some Water? That sounds kind of folky. It's very much the folk trio, again, A Mighty Wind. Yeah. And that's what they're into. Then P.S. I Love You and Twist and Shout. Yeah. When I said they played a few songs from the first album, they played most of the songs from the first album. So the covers are Anna Boys and Twist and Shout. Although, again, these are songs that, as you say, they recorded for the album. So it's not quite as adventurous uh, as those middle two pop go the Beatles right. shows. And they would kind of go into a mix as we go into the next batch that we'll hear on the next disc when we get to it. Right. They returned from that recording. There was Paul's party. Then one day later, they went down 
and recorded Easy Beat. That was a live show. And that must have been an interesting conversation when they met up again. John, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, I can just imagine. <laughs> yeah. This is not Lee Peters. This is Brian Matthews, Brian Bathtubes. <laughs> right. Playing virtually my favorite kind of unreleased song of theirs. Yeah, John just rips through yeah. this vocal. Yeah, he does. Some of the can hear that he was still thinking about the day before in his head a little bit i just gotta get all of this out somehow and i'm just gonna sing this song as loud and as hard as i possibly can yeah it's quite possibly their best version of some of the guy although i really like the first cavern version of it yeah i listen to this and think if you need a demonstration of the power of john lennon's rock voice man this is it great song for only doing four songs in this show they really sort of get across everything they do you know you you got you got a rocker you got paul doing a taste of honey again (laughs) again with the doe eyes (laughs) oh my gosh what's going on here and then you've got them as a group doing two of their own thank you girl and for me to you for me to you okay they've they've done that a bunch but thank you girl wow yeah This song, I'll Get You, are two of my favorite innocent Beatles songs, is the way I would describe it, I guess. The style of their writing, the melody, they're just sweet songs. Not great ones, but the Beatles sound right there. It's the time period encapsulated. You know, She Loves You is a better song, but this is maybe more representative of what it was like in the middle of 1963. Yeah. Yeah. You know, She Loves You is kind of forward looking and then i want to hold your hand even more so you know this is okay here all of our influences rolled into the best possible song that we can write that's a good description absolutely this live show was recorded on the 19th of june and would be aired on the 23rd so we're ending out this disc with uh, a show recorded on the 3rd of july which was aired the next day on the 4th it was the light program's beat show right a program that they've been on before. And they're in in the same theater where they had recorded their first session for Here We Go in 1962. Yeah. It's half a step back, although it's not really a step back. It's just the show that they gotten booked into. Also don't don't know about contracts. Brian was famous for honoring contracts that had been signed months earlier. You know, other than the numbers the Beatles are doing, this is almost a repeat of the show from 62. You have the Northern Dance Orchestra, the NDO, we remember them from previous discs. Right. The Trad Lads, who are also (laughs) on some of the early Beatles BBC shows. The only thing that seems to be different here is uh, they had a a new 
producer for the show, a fellow named Gay Byrne. No, no, Spain. We're not talking about that. He just happens to have that name, although in 62, Gay still would have been kind of an odd first name. <laughs> Perhaps. No? <laughs> I know nothing about the guy. I can't tell you anything about his sexuality, but... <laughs> right. It's just, <laughs> just a comment. But he's a new he's a new guy, a new producer, and... Uh, nothing to do with the holiday on this no. side of the pond. Just happened to go out on that day. And version three of a song, which is A Taste of Honey, once again... actually started with for me to you which didn't get aired for some reason again following in with the tradition of the scene at 6 30 yeah because the same thing happened the first time around we we'll record three songs and we'll only air two of them but yeah so for me to you didn't get aired right seems blasphemous to us but yeah it's not too fatal a strike because well we do have other versions of For Me To You, both on this disc and on the previous one, we, we pretty much know what it would have sounded like. would have been hard to surprise us, although not that we wouldn't be overjoyed were someone to magically come up with this tape tomorrow. <laughs> then beyond that, Taste of Honey, the third version on this disc, Paul being Paul McCharmley. <laughs> Doe-eyed Paul McCartney. Uh, and then Twist and Shout, the second version of that. Yeah, that's the song you almost want to go... How many versions of Twist and Shout? How many times did John Lennon sing Twist and Shout? Because he went, it went into like 1965. That's part of the reason why they went to the short version, yeah. I think. And he didn't bring it up in uh, Get Back. So <laughs> That's true. So as we alluded to earlier, the BBC and Brian had actually had agreements for the Beatles to be on quite a few other shows than the ones that we actually got during this period of time. And in fact, this appearance on the uh, beat show was apparently part of their agreement when he canceled some other dates. Right. Well, they certainly were busy. So the, the BBC had wanted them on June 17th, June 18th and July 3rd for here we go. So, you know, that would have been at least three more shows, if not four. And then they wanted them for side by side on July 2nd, July 10th, and August 23rd. So there are seven more BBC sessions, which Brian negotiated them out of. <laughs> or overbooked them in the first place. <laughs> but they were quite happy to be on the radio, on the BBC, as much as they possibly could at this point in time. I suppose. I, I think only second to being in the studio and recording and, and that may have been some of it was you know they needed some days off and they needed some time to actually be in the studio and record i mean one of these bbc sessions it was uh, a morning at emi an afternoon at the bbc and an evening back at emi yeah does that not sound crazy <laughs> not just them how did mal accomplish all of that this day will be in his diary <laughs> <laughs> And then they talk about that a little bit in, in eight days a week is, you know, the only thing that they didn't do on that day was go off and judge a beauty pageant. 
Right. And then all four of them had to get some shagging in. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> well, I've read in the biographies that's what was going on. <laughs> Still, it is kind of amazing. The BBC have fully jumped on board the Beatle train. Oh, yeah. The first disc of, of material is kind of like the BBC being a little bit tentative, saying, well, okay, we're not sure. Okay, you can come in. Yeah, yeah, sure, come in and do this. The second disc is them. yeah, okay, these guys are going to be something. This disc is full-fledged. We It's Beatlemania. We get it. You're going to be hot. You're going to be big for at least a year. This is what I really look forward to in, in Lewis's book, because this is the era, the whole machinations of Beatlemania, how it came together. As you said, BBC had kind of bought into it and they're pushing it. And so they're going to drive these records. They're, they're kind of driving the mania and the Beatles are delivering, but I'm sure all the other managers who are still struggling with what show business is, is thinking, how did he do that? How do you get the BBC to get behind you and put you on constantly virtually i don't see that it's either brian or the beatles themselves that they actually did need the bbc i think that this was the higher-ups of the bbc actually recognizing a the these boys were talented you know that they had something and not just that they had something that they had something that people would tune into listen to and buy things because of that right well, I don't disagree with you. The BBC would argue about that because, well, we're not a commercial venture. <laughs> right. This is driving straight towards what happens at the end of the year, you know, with the Palladium show and the Royal Variety show and great successes. Records still going to top. And as we get into disc four, somewhere down the line next month, you know, we're going to see how that builds into the success that they actually have in America. You know, it, it didn't just come out of the blue. I mean, you know, maybe to capital it came out of the blue, but they knew what they were doing. You know, they were building this audience. They were building the recognition. Right. And whether or not the story of Ed Sullivan being interrupted by their reception back home is true or not, the general feeling was there. It was in the air. Yeah. And despite these stories that we all like to tell about, oh, it worked in America because Kennedy died, maybe it would have come sooner had Kennedy not been shot. You know, it was building. And America was the next building block. Yeah. Huh. Now I'm just going to have to sit awake tonight and think, if Kennedy hadn't been killed, never had considered that because that was just such a defining thing. Hmm. I mean, maybe not. It still took until late December of 63 for it to work in Canada. Although, you know, they weren't quite as big flops in Canada in 63 as they were here. They got a little bit of notice, but they also weren't the big thing really until uh, between She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Right. Again, Sullivan just kind of being the icing on the cake there. Well, you know, the story, the way records were broken in different markets in the United States, the stories are different in different parts of the country. So on the East Coast, there was a buzz about this thing. She Loves You had been played some, and but the rest of the country was not aware of them at all. 
do we believe Dick Clark actually played the record on Raider Record? He says he did. Right. But there's no audio and there's no video of uh, <laughs> to back up that claim. Yeah. The way he tells it, it was like a pre-release version of it. And then he played it and even remembers the score as, as a, like, a, a just fair, whatever that number was. Huh. And then he likes to tell that he, he pulled out a picture and, and the kids just sort of giggled. <laughs> That's an interesting story, I guess. Our thanks to The Bachelors for supplying the variety. So long from me, Lee Peters, and our producer, Terry Hennebury. And from The Beatles, this sound. If they're going to put out one CD from this whole collection, legitimately, this is a CD I'd like to see them do, even if they remove the duplicates. Yeah, there's some great material here. You know, some of it is on the live at the BBC sets, but you really kind of even lose context there. So you think they should be released as the shows? Well, I mean, my thought is that they should just sort of go back and release whatever they have of the entire show, either digitally or just if they want to do podcasts, just do podcasts of them. You know, put them out. Let the people who want to hear them as they were, I mean, we're more or less getting a chance to hear them as they were. And I think we're learning a lot putting all this into Beatles history for 20 years. It's just kind of been a song here and a song there. And, you know, maybe in the nineties, we kind of sort of started to hear what these shows sounded like, but even here, you know, the bachelors, you put them in with these acts, which while they superficially don't fit, it gives you a very interesting picture of what British radio was like at the time. One that I even really certainly hadn't had. That's a good aspect of these CDs. We have to thank Lord Reith for a number of things. He has advanced Beatles bootleggery in his own style and fashion, but it really advances our understanding of the era and of the group, I think. A very good collection, I think. Yep. This is disc three. We've got 20 more discs coming. (laughs) That's part of the reason why we're actually going through them, listening to them, and commenting on them for y'all to make you want to go and pick them up. And, you know, maybe you can learn a little something too. I, I think we're actually getting some ideas about the era. All right. So that's it for this week. We will be back with a new show next week. That's the plan. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. The original chap who did the balance on Pop Go the Beatles was um, a lovely guy called Charles Clark Maxwell, who was an old Etonian. Uh, he may, might just as well have been an old Martian as far as they were concerned, because they hadn't really come across this before. So um, I was put in in his place, uh, because um, 
and I got very mersey when it suited me. We used to get half an hour to set up uh, before Pop Go the Beatles. Um, it was very difficult for us because the BBC was still recovering from the wartime scenario of keep the drums down, don't get the workers jiving in the aisles, keep production up, damp the drums. Um, and we were trying to um, establish a new sort of pattern to rhythm. Uh, we were trying to copy the commercial people. Uh, it started with Presley, obviously. Um, and we had a few problems with our microphones at the time because they were rather old. They were ribbon microphones, and as soon as you um, expended any energy at it um, above the normal, the ribbon used to break, which was quite handy. Um, however, we, we did have about half an hour to set up these things, and we, we tried to screen the drummer, and we screened the guitars, and we had two and a half hours to do six numbers. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 